Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. NBA crossover is coming to Cleveland for NBA All-Star. This February, experience the intersection of music, art, fashion, tech, and basketball at the Public Auditorium. Celebrate the past, present, and future of the NBA with special appearances, brand experiences, limited edition apparel and collectibles, and live performances. Check out NBA Crossover February 18th, 19th, and 20th. Get tickets today at NBAevents.com. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep the facility running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you, Raymond in Buffalo and Maria in Miami, Jules in Minneapolis, and Stan in central Indiana. Taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with experienced branch staff at over 250 locations so you get the product you're looking for. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Adam Maris of DNVR Sports. Really exciting venture that he is a part of. He's actually the VP of Creative Production there and insanely knowledgeable about the Nuggets and the NBA in general. And we go into some really interesting topics. We talk about the Nuggets' future, what they need to learn from the seeding games in the playoffs, how they're going to sort out this power forward position, which has been one of those big questions for me this year. A lot on Michael Porter Jr., Skinny Jokic, plenty of other material. Runs about an hour. Really enjoyed it. Hope you will enjoy it too. Brought to you by Bet Online. Use the Podcast One promo code for a sign-up bonus, which is awesome. Tells them, of course, that you came from us. And hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's good to be talking to you. Absolutely. I, I wanted to talk with you because I think the Nuggets are, one for me, one of the most interesting teams with the seeding games and playoffs coming up. I know there's been a lot of interest in the bottom of the West, you know, because the teams are all grappling for the eighth seed and the opportunity to get their butts kicked by the Lakers. But for, for me, the larger, the group that is more intriguing are the teams that not only have something real to play for, but also have some big decisions to make. And I think that's why the Nuggets fit it well, is because not only do they have, you know, the chance of making making it a round or two and, you know, being competitive and facing some new opponents and all that, but also, you know, from the power forward position and a lot of other things, 
Yeah. Tim Connolly and now not Arturis Konishovitz have a lot of decisions to make. Yeah, and it's kind of funny how these things almost sneak up on you because for the last three years, Denver has been talking about their young core and their young team. And, you know, they have a saying here in Denver don't skip steps. You're going to go step by step. Well, this was the year that you saw Wancheriana Gomez and Malik Beasley get traded and Jared Vanderbilt, by the way, who's sort of a toss in there. But he was another just young, you know, you hate to say asset for a player, but that's what he was. He was a potential you know, sort of player uh, in the making. So you lose those three players, and then I think you go into what you assumed would be a normal year, a normal playoff, and then you would evaluate your team from there and decide where you go forward. But now you talk about those three players being gone and those decisions you have to make now based on what I would consider to be faulty evidence. Um, whatever this tournament turns out to be, I think it's probably going to provide less than an ideal sort of look of, of what your team would look like under normal circumstances. So, yeah, Denver, it, it really snuck up on them. They had largely the exact same roster for three or four years, and now they're going into a summer where I expect there to be at least some fairly significant changes, and they're going to have to make that decision on on um, less than ideal uh, sort of evidence. Right. I mean, you have eight seeding games, which is – I think there's going to be plenty of rust there. It looks like teams are going to get a couple of scrimmages. And then the playoffs, however long however long the, the Nuggets make it in that. And it's – yeah, and let, let's – wait, we could start with some of the decisions and then get into some of the some of the matchups and logistics and all that. But for me, the, the headliner is at power forward. They signed Paul Millsap to that big deal a couple of years ago and ended up, you know – Picking up the team option for the third year, which made which made him a lot of money, but also makes him now an unrestricted free agent in the in the well now fall of 2020, right. and it all and then when they when they traded f- for Jeremy Grant, it seemed to me like it was kind of this audition year, and that one of them would be chosen as the kind of power forward of the present and future, more future if it's Jeremy Grant. I mean, Paul Millsap's getting closer to the swan song, though he's not yeah. obviously done yet. And so before we get into where it could go from here, I wanted to get your sense of where things are right now. So when the hiatus started in, in mid-March, how were you thinking about it? What do you know about what the Nuggets were thinking about it? I think this was 100% a handoff year between Paul Millsap and Jeremy Grant. And to your point, the Nuggets could bring back both guys. I mean, Paul Millsap has ties to Denver. He grew up here. I don't think a lot of people know that. Um, but all the way up and through, I believe, the end of middle school, he lived in Denver. And I and I think from covering him in his three years here, he was very content and maybe even eager to finish his career in Denver, not just the three-year deal that he signed, but you know, also to, to re-up and, and, and sort of close it out here, maybe moving to the bench or whatever. So when they signed Jeremy Grant, I saw it and I think most people saw it as, okay, this is the year for Grant to sort of slowly become that guy, whether he becomes the starter by the end of the year, which didn't look like it was going to happen um, you know, before – uh, the break from corona- with coronavirus. It didn't look like he was going to become the start of this year, but it certainly looked like he was going to be a top priority for Denver going forward. And credit the Denver Nuggets. I mean, they've done this, and Tim Conley's kind of done this with players like Will Barton, for example. I mean, he's he's managed to find second-round picks or players on other teams buried at the end of rosters or who were just undervalued and said, oh, this guy actually kind of fits not just what our team wants, but sort of the ideal uh, player for that position. And if you look at Jeremy Grant, he's shooting 40% from the three-point line this year on three and a half attempts. This is now his third year third year out of four. He had one, re- which now apparently uh, two years ago he shot 29% from the three-point line. That appears to be the uh, – 
um, the oddball. It looks like he's more of a consistent three-point shooter. Um, and I think watching him, his stroke looked very smooth. He looks confident. He knows when to shoot. Um, so 40% three-point shooter who can do a, a bunch of other things and who accepts his role. So I think Denver still really wants him to be that guy. But with the way things have kind of shook out with with this um you know this break from play the short off season i think maybe it becomes a little bit more difficult maybe there's more suitors than then also just quite frankly he shot 40% from 3 this year how many teams want a guy that shoots 40% from 3 from the power forward position who can also guard 3 4 positions that's what he does so i think he's going to be pretty valuable and i think it was almost a certainty that denver would re-sign him but I, I just don't feel like anything is in the NBA is a certainty at this point. Yeah, I, I think what I find most compelling about the Nuggets power forward situation, and this was true even before the dynamics of what happened during this season, is that unrestricted free agency is just so much less predictable than restricted free agency yeah. because it only takes one team to really overvalue a guy and, and, and or or it doesn't even need to be a team. It could just be a player thinking about his situation differently. Maybe it's something changed and he wants to be closer to City X or right, right. this yeah. team offers a role that's intriguing or, you know, Grant's not convinced that Millsap that, that Millsap is ready to give up the reins or Millsap's, you know, he decided yeah. that he'd rather, he thinks he's good enough to start for another couple of years and if the Nuggets aren't willing to do that. And so that was always what intrigued me and it still is. But I think the biggest factor working in Denver's favor with those two is the overall free agent market. And this is even true yeah. before potential salary cap reduction. And what I mean by that is there are not that many teams that have that will have larger than the non-taxpayer mid-level, which roughly nine million is 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 where I would go, assuming the cap yeah. ends up one oh nine ish. But so there and and remember the only way for a player to get more than that there are two ways one is cap space so teams that have cap space and of course offer more and then the other one is through a sign and trade which requires the nuggets facilitating right and i'm guessing they wouldn't be super thrilled about that maybe in the case of like hey you know sort of like the nuggets did all those years ago with andre Dalla, where it's like they're leaving anyway might as well get a little something for it but i don't think that's i don't think that's really in play here especially because there are so few teams like the the nuggets would be a mandatory facilitator for anybody who's kind of close and so they can squeeze this a little bit. And then the other thing that I think runs really strongly in their favor, which is interesting, is kind of how those that small number of teams with cap space has worked. So I'll give a couple of examples. Atlanta. Atlanta has a lot of cap space this year, kind of in, in some ways, depending on how you think of this class, more than they know what to do with. And going into the season, there was an easy theory that they have John Collins – and we don't know exactly what John Collins is defensively, but you want to play somebody alongside of him. So maybe you go with Grant, go a little bit more offensive. You have some shot blocking there. And that theory was totally sound, except that Travis Schlenk decided over the course of the season that John Collins wasn't a center. He was a power forward and then traded for two centers. So now <laughs> they don't have any needs really in the front court, especially if you consider DeAndre Hunter a front courty guy, whether it's at the three or the four. And so I don't think they're really in the Jeremy Grant mix unless it's just like he wants to go there, the value comes to it. And Charlotte, another team that has money, not super competitive, but they have money. And PJ Washington, to me, you know, like maybe you could try a Washington Grant combination together. Maybe you get both you get Grant and figure it out. But I don't think they're pushing hard. Memphis 
gave up their cap space in the pursuit of Justice Winslow. So a lot of the movement that happened, and the Pistons' Cavs swap might end up opening up something, but I don't think Detroit is like, for kind of either perspective, is a really great Jeremy Grant destination. Like for for their perspective, he's you know he's not really on the right timeline. You don't they don't know exactly what the hell they have in their other guys. So like, why commit to somebody like Grant? And then for Grant, it's like okay, if the money's even close to similar, why go to a team that's going to be bad probably for the next two to three years when you could be on a team that will probably be good for the next two to three years? Yeah, I think all of those things are very sound, and I think the likely scenario is that Jeremy Grant returns to Denver and is the you know quote unquote power forward of the future, however long that future is. I think um, Denver just values him like that and we can talk a little bit later because about the 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 fit between him Jokic and Michael Porter I think when I think about Jeremy Grant's value to the Nuggets I really think of those three as a trio sure um but we know this from every offseason prior to this one that not everybody's rational actors so I can't imagine anybody saying PJ Washington and Jeremy Grant is a smart move for a team like Charlotte but (laughs) These are the types of things that just seem to always happen, and uh, you always end up scratching your head. Right, and Grant, you know, he has support around it. OKC didn't trade Jeremy Grant because they weren't happy with him. They traded him because they got a reasonable offer, and they didn't think that was where the franchise was going. And that was a totally reasonable decision. They made the playoffs without him. And so, but so, like, sometimes a a good thing to look for when trying to calibrate a player's value is did they burn any bridges did they lose any constituencies not because those teams the like i don't think jeremy grant's going to re-sign with the thunder but they can serve as a proxy for how third-party front offices feel so sam presti liking jeremy grant is a good sign because that that for jeremy grant because that means that more people could be interested as well whereas if you get cut or if you get traded like as a negative value or something like that maybe that could be a sign of of teams being less interested and yeah, so there's there's a lot of subjectivity to it, a lot that we don't know in terms of what those two players, meaning Grant and Millsap, are comfortable with. And I, I, I think that Millsap potentially, that idea that you laid out of, you know, with his history with Denver and potential willingness to eventually step aside, even if and maybe if it's not immediate, I think that could help too with Millsap. That Well, it is, actually I should say it happened this year though. I mean, if you yeah. look at the numbers, he didn't play that much. He got injured and sat out longer than he needed to. And I just think that's a bit of the blueprint for him going forward. Um, you know, he's a really good player, and I suspect that when this bubble tournament resumes, um, he will probably play more minutes than he did in the regular season. But and maybe sit out. Maybe we we might actually have some load management games from him in the uh, bubble scenario. But so we already seen that sort of decline. Just twenty four minutes per game from him. Just twelve yep. points per game. He became mostly a three point shooter. It's weird to think, but Paul Millsap was sort of a three and D player this year in, in a lot of ways he was the defensive anchor and then he spaced the court there weren't a lot of post-ups there weren't a lot of isos something else i want to touch base with you on re- regarding this and we have a lot of other topics to hit but I- i'm so interested in this idea and that's part of why i want to talk to you is i think of grant and Millsap defensively as very different archetypes and that yep. isn't, doesn't mean anything is better or worse and something that i learned over the course of this year and nothing's definitive but everybody can be changing and everything like that is I I realize that I like Jokic playing next to a more stout guy, somebody who can kind of in some ways do some of the more traditional center things, be a more stout rim protector, and that allows Jokic, so if he's you know, out on the floor a little bit, you have somebody who can kind of clean it up. And originally, like years ago, I was really into the idea of a more spindly, you know, recovery block, that type of player next to him. And 
It's not definitive, but I will say I was surprised that I liked the Millsap archetype a lot better than the, the, the Grant one, at least in what I saw. And that's why I wanted to ask you, because you watched a lot more Nuggets basketball than I did. Well, I do, but not for the reasons I think that you, you stated there. So Millsap, to me, is sort of defensively speaking, a little bit of like a, a Draymond Light. He's a backline defender. Sure. He's a, he's a helper. He's very smart. He's reading the court defensively very quickly, and he's not you know blocking a ton of shots or whatever. But he's just always rotating on that backline, playing free safety, and just always in the right spot. So that's what makes him so valuable. Jeremy Grant is more of an on-ball defender. Um, you know, he's not a great rebounder, which is I think maybe the most underrated aspect of defense. He's he's actually a pretty poor uh, rebounder, but he's really long and he's really good defensively. He guards LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard probably as well as anybody on the Nuggets roster and really I think especially with regards to Kawhi Leonard, he guards him shockingly well. Um, that was kind of a good matchup all, all year long, putting Jeremy Grant on Kawhi. So I, I think he's much better in that role, guarding Giannis. Those those types of which there's actually quite a few, even Luka Doncic. Um, you know, he's very very good at that, but he's not a great back backline defender. And so much of being a backline defender is cleaning the glass after you force the team into a difficult shot. So I'm with you though with Jokic. I, I think Jokic is a very smart player as well as positional defender. But you can always force the Nuggets into tough rotations when you have. Jokic on your team. I think this is true of most centers, by the way, even the Rudy Gobert's of the world. If you pull those guys out on the perimeter, you need to have a back line that can rotate and make smart reads. So I think the rotation, to your point, the uh, Paul Millsap version or style of defense is more important. Um, But I also think that there are ways you can sort of make up for Jeremy Grant's deficiencies elsewhere on the roster. That's a great point. And Grant's versatility and his man-to-man defense actually opens up some other options, too, because then you can i mean i've thought of that as a deficiency for the for the nuggets for a little while now is you know that that guy to defend more stout forwards and that i guess could lead into the other elephant in the room here which is michael porter junior and porter more of an offensive player than a defensive player and so sometimes i think with those types of guys we focus a little bit too much on who they can defend and it's like who they're best at defending and instead it should be who they can defend because the idea with porter is sure if you're playing with the four and you have a commensurate three you could have a lot of shooting you could have you could go in a lot of different directions but that's why i've been really interested in the porter grant combination conceptually is that maybe the way it works out is not Porter is rigidly the three and Jeremy Grant's the four. Maybe Porter defends the worst forward and Grant defends the better forward. I think that's exactly how it works, or at least that's the, the that's Denver's path to success is is getting Michael Porter up to snuff. And look, he's only played in forty eight games. He's had six hundred seventy minutes under his belt. I think th- his defense is really bad. But I, I, if you look at the numbers, the, the the Nuggets actually aren't that bad when he's been on the court, including when they've had to put some like pretty, um, you know, some weird lineups out there because the most when he played was when the Nuggets were very injured. Millsap was out, Gary Harris was out. Two, Denver's two best defense being out and the defense was still really good so um i have a theory about michael porter and specifically about players around Jokic, which is defensively when you throw a lot of length around Jokic, i think your defense is actually pretty good and michael porter jr i think he's listed at 610 he's not that much shorter than Jokic. he's really tall so i, w- I would say he's probably 611 um you know jeremy grant is just so long so quick uh, covers a lot of space super athletic so you 
you start putting two really long bodies around Jokic, and I think that the sum becomes a little bit um, greater than, than its part. So, um, I, I and then if you look at the rebounding, I think the number one thing. There's so much about Michael Porter that I didn't realize before he got to the Denver Nuggets because he sat out for two years and he's a high schooler. And I don't usually sort of scout that level of competition, but he's an incredible rebounder. And I don't just mean like a good rebounder for a wing. He averaged 11 rebounds per 36 minutes this year, which is about the same as Jokic and Mason Plumley. They're both about the same. All three of those guys are about at the same level of rebounding. And in particular, as an offensive rebounder, he just has such a good feel for crashing the boards on that end and getting second chance points. So, um, you know, I, 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 that's why I look at it and I say uh, a, a guy like um, Jeremy Grant, not a great rebounder. That's a big weakness, but you might make up for it on the on, at, from the small forward position. Yeah, it is a really effective way to handle that. And remember that most teams aren't pushing the offensive glass as much, which means that defensive teams don't need to focus as much on having defensive rebounders. You can use a team philosophy. There are a lot of different ways to handle that problem. You need to handle it. I mean, that's something that I've talked about with with a couple different teams, including Memphis, as being a potential issue. But as long as you have enough that you can kind of keep keep opponents honest, I think you'll be okay. Can I can I tell you? Can I disagree with you on this? Sure. And I know this is like going against conventional wisdom right now. I actually think it's less about you know the value of offensive rebounding and really about where it comes from and the thing about Jokic, it's funny i'm going back because Jokic became the starter on december 15 2016 so i'm going back and watching that game and all of the different preview you know how that previewed everything else that came a funny stat popped up on the screen it said the nuggets had three of the top five rebounders in the nba all coming off the bench it was Jokic, <laughs> wilson chandler uh, and kenneth Fareed. yep and denver's teams have always been great rebounding and in particular offensive rebounding and i think one of the reasons is their unique style of play stretches teams out in ways that they're not used to so it's not sending two three guys to the boards and banging in there it's dragging your center way out to who he's guarding pick and rolls as an on-ball defender and you have your power forwards out trying to close out at Paul Millsap and Jeremy Grant, and now you have your guards and, and your wings and everybody else, and you're you're only sending one, maybe two guys in there, but you're getting so many rebounders because so many guys are in different positions. So I think with Denver, they managed to both be solid defensively in transition and then also great on the offensive glass. They're a rare exception, and I think it's because Jokic is such a rare offensive player. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I, I've thought that the offensive glass has actually been an underutilized portion by a lot of teams and it's you know the the idea and i've brought up oklahoma city here for years with Stephen adams and various things as as the example of the false choice that teams say you have to either get back or offensive rebound but if you do with the right personnel but what you're getting at is is something that i think is really important which is that another way you can create an advantage on the offensive glass is by putting the other teams the defense's players in a weird pot in a weird spot and so like you know point guards aren't used to boxing out they aren't used to yep. to battling for rebounds and so Jokic can do that, and, and the, that's another benefit of going uh, of, of attacking a switch-heavy system in certain ways is that you could pull – like, for, for example, there were times when the Rockets had trouble on the defensive glass because Klee Capel was away from the basket. Fortunately for them, they had a bunch of stout dudes, so they were able to, like, you know, the Eric Gordons and the P.J. Tuckers of the world can do a better job than most guys of their of their ilk. And Harden too. He's he's a stout guy, and so I. But I think that is a an, an interesting wrinkle to this that is is worth mentioning. And the other part of the Porter Grant in particular, although you can argue with Millsap too, it's really about whether the defense respects your shot. Is this idea of the actualized version of the Nuggets' offense, which is that if opponents have to respect 
everybody's shot, then that just it changes yeah. the it changes the spacing, it changes the geometry of the four, and and importantly, considering Jokic, it opens up a lot of cuts and passing angles because there's less help, there's different help, and and there are a lot of a lot of places that you can attack in unusual ways, and. I long thought that that was going to be a really hard, you know, the, basically the Nuggets were going to have to make a choice. They're going to have to choose between, you know, getting offensive players that can execute so you can go for that fully actualized system or defensive players. And that's, I think that's still true. Like, you know, nobody's yeah. going to be all things to all people. That's that's unrealistic. Right. But that is something that intrigues me about the Grant-Porter combination is that if, especially Porter, but if both of them and, and overall, you know, Malone using them and, and communication and everything else like that, they get more comfortable with each other. If they can do well enough, then I think you start to really start cook with gas. And not that the Nuggets had any problem with that. They were the two seed last year. They're currently the three seed, could potentially move up. But you and I know that there is a difference between that sort of regular season record and being viable at the next stage. And that's what I think. It's that unlocking, being versatile, being dangerous at all five positions that would make the Nuggets more potent against the best of the best. Yeah, the versatile part is really interesting um, because I think the Nuggets can be really good at what they do. Michael, this is where Michael Porter is so important because I think he can become a player that sort of is the curveball to the uh, fastball that is the Jokic Murray pick and roll. But um, but I, I the part about the defense is just. I, I really do wonder if you could make up for it with length. And, uh, you know, if you look at it, just how do you think this this lineup would fare? If you throw Jamal Murray, he's six foot five. Not a great defender, but he's six foot five. He's tall for a point guard. You throw Torrey Craig out there, he's about six, 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 seven. You know, very athletic, very good defender. Michael Porter, Jeremy Grant, and Jokic, that's a lot of length. You could throw Will Barton in for either one of the two guys in the backcourt, but you just always have guys that are going to be well above average for their position and very mobile. And to me, those are all, other than Torrey Craig, those are all offensive players. But when you throw enough of them out there, I wonder, and, and Jokic being just such a, I always say this, I think he's an underrated defender, but he's really, really good at sort of walling things off. He's just, he's just a very good positional defender. You're always going to have to go the long way uh, you know, to the basket when he's out there. It's just he's so slow that if you have fast guys, you you can go the long way and still get there. But if you throw that length on there, maybe that that changes things. And I've seen it because I've watched the team kind of unfold this, and I think that they're moving in that direction. That's why they've added so much length over the last couple of years. But um, you know, that that's kind of my theory, at least, of what I think the Nuggets think and 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 where they're going to be headed over the next couple seasons. I think that it will go a long way towards making them a a better regular season defense and that that's important you know and not not that they're any slouch they were i think 13th in cleaning the glass and they were around was it around 10th last year i mean considering how great their offense offensively was. no or defensively. defensively yeah i think both both years about the same yeah yep. and yeah they were 11th last year using clean the glasses garbage time filter 13th this year 11th last year so i think they could maybe bump that up a little bit higher especially if the bench defense stays if gets to a decent level that's an underrated part of like the overall defensive rating is just how good are yeah. you when your starters are off the floor but i do still worry as i do with basically anybody until they prove it about how they'll fare against the best of the best because what the challenge with like let's use the clippers is that all of those normal rules don't apply as well when somebody when you have a guy like Kawhi leonard who is just so hard to deny and so then you're you're not in your a scheme or your b scheme you're basically in the mitigation idea yeah and that gets a little bit harder when you don't i mean jeremy grant would probably have to do a lot of work there 
But something that Malone might start tinkering with, which I'm, I'm really interested in, is that potentially using, and they've done this before, but like making it more, more cogent, regular philosophy of putting Jamal Murray off ball, like yeah. not on the point guard in the initial action. Now there are things you could do going back to like the Clippers blazer series years ago where the guards were setting screens for each other and all sorts of things to get the matchup you want. But what, I, what I'd like about that, if they could, if they could make it work is that you never want a team to be comfortable run. You don't want the thing that they want to run anyway to involve players that they think give them an advantage. You know, like that, that's, it's a really basic thing, but it's an important one. This is part of why I've been more skeptical of the Celtics defense at certain moments in the playoffs is that like, well, you were a one five pick and roll back when they were starting in his canner or theoretically starting in his canner before Tice really stepped up. You go, well, crap, that's what most teams want to do. Uh, right. So that concerns me a little bit, but I think they might have ways around it. And then that gets into another guy that I want to discuss, which is Gary Harris. I mean, I, I've been a believer in Harris for a long time. I didn't watch his draft film because I wasn't doing that then, but I really liked him that first season. And if he could ever make a jump shot again, I think he's a really <laughs> nice fit for where that defensive concept is going. Yeah, he's such an interesting one. He's a career 36% three-point shooter, but he's never been within, let's see, I, I guess one year he shot 35%. Outside of that, it's been 42, 40, 34, and 33. I mean, so it's just crazy. It's so crazy how he was red hot for two consecutive seasons and then ice cold for the last two. The, I don't, I don't know. Honestly, he's the most puzzling player on the Nuggets roster. There's, I have a bunch of little theories, but none of them I feel that confident in. But the number one theory that I think is is maybe the the one I'm most confident in is just that he got injured two years ago and. You know, the road to recovery, I think, has maybe been a little bit tougher for him. He's not getting to the rim like he used to. And over the last two seasons, he went from being the second best player on the Nuggets roster to probably the fourth, fifth or sixth, depending on, you know, how you value his defense. And not just that, but also his usage. So he's a big he's a big sort of. You, you you can really see the evolution of the Nuggets over the last four seasons and just how much he was bringing the ball up the court, how much he was running pick and rolls and back cuts and getting to the rim and finishing. He's a very acrobatic finisher. I think a, like one of the better, more just sort of hang in the air, reverse, um, you know, reverse finishers in the NBA. You think of guys like Kyrie Irving, for example. Gary Harris really good at that, but he doesn't do it that much anymore because he doesn't ever get to the rim. I have to think that has a lot to do with his um, with his injury history, and that's one reason why I'm really curious to see what happens after this break because he just got four unexpected months off. I'm really curious if, if this is sort of the, the reset he needed to, to get healthy. And maybe that's not it. Jamal Murray over that time has also stepped into a leading role. He's now now Murray is the second best player on the roster. He's sort of replaced a lot of the things that Gary Harris does. And maybe you just can't have two high usage guards on the same team, especially a, a Jokic led team. So I, I don't Gary Harris is a little bit of a head scratcher with how poorly he's performed over the last two years. Yeah, it is something that I've had trouble solving. And I, I think that there is something to both the injury idea and that a lot of players have trouble when their role goes down getting into a rhythm. Like they're, they're, yeah. The analogy that I've heard made before is it's kind of like a, a pinch hitter in baseball where there are some guys that are just wired for it and they understand that's what they're going to do and they can make it work. And then there are other guys who, when they get shifted into a smaller role, just they can't do they, – they, they just can't get into the right mode at least right away. And I think it could be both of those things at, at once for Harris. The ball's in his hands less, and he's some of those old bread and butter things just aren't working as well. And 
One of the biggest things that I'm really interested in post-hiatus is, as you brought up, the unexpected time off. And for a lot of players, that's going to be a big challenge. You know, maybe especially considering the constraints that led to this, they are going to be in trouble because they haven't had the opportunity to take care of themselves the way they usually do. They've had other justifiable priorities, and that will be a challenge. But then there's this other group, which have the same potential pitfalls as as the first, which which are people who we're dealing with more than we knew. And that could be, yeah, yeah. Or, or even that we did know, but but it's just like, you don't necessarily get how it weighs on somebody. And so like, there's, right. there's the, especially, um, I, I talk about this a lot because one of the best direct examples for me was Stephen Curry in the 2016 playoffs. And so, yeah, t- uh, had the grade two MCL sprain, came back and played played well, you know, by, by a reasonable person's standards, but wasn't the same guy. And, you know, it took a long time for him to recover and everything else like that. And and there is this assumption that is that is sometimes made by not only fans, but members of the media, and sometimes even it seems like players, that when you're back, you're right. And I really don't think that's true. And mm. so that yeah. could be recurring injuries. That could be just, you know, the wear and tear like the, of, of like you sometimes Nate, Nate brought this up about how sometimes play looks worse at the end of the year because guys just aren't as crisp and everything. They're getting run down. They're playing too many games. And so I'm fascinated to see how all over the league of these 22 – what sort of what sort of benefits we have there because we've always kind of grouped the two things together like Danny Green is an extreme example it's like Danny Green looked bad his last year with the Spurs by his own standards but he was dealing with a groin issue and they said that at the time but we didn't really know exactly how severe it was and then all of a sudden he comes back next year and is like oh Danny Green's back and I'm hopeful that many players including Gary Harris will that the time will have helped help them get as right as they could and if we see some of those guys really step back and be be in it that would be so exciting i i think all of those things are true and you can even look at his body i mean he dropped a ton of weight this year and part of the reason for that was you know he wondered if that was going to help him not get injured again because he had had basically two injury plagued seasons so coming into this one playing i don't know 10 pounds i mean noticeably lighter than what he had been he's a pretty strong guy he was a a wide receiver in high school, all state wide receiver. He he's built like a tight end, you know. He's just a big kind of stocky guy. But he slimmed down, and you know, unfortunately, this year the numbers didn't really translate. I, one thing I and we could probably wrap up on Gary because I don't know how important he'll be to this team defensively. He's very very good as an on ball defender, but I don't know that he makes like a. You know, he's not a guy that's going to make your defense great by himself. He's going to make it hard on other teams' best guards or whatever, but but that's about it. But he had some momentum. He didn't he was a 19th pick and he didn't have a great rookie season. He was kind of getting spot minutes here or there. Then his sophomore season, he really started to play well and got a lot of momentum going. Him and Jokic were like the first pairing to kind of get a nice chemistry going. And then the follow-up season after that, his third season, he had an incredible year. And then when he got hurt and missed all that time, he never got back. And I wonder if he's just one of those guys that, you know, his confidence went through the roof and that's what unlocked his game. And then he lost that. And sometimes players lose that. And it's really hard to regain that, especially when you weren't a number one, two or three pick. You were a guy that was supposed to not be great. You just kind of had a couple good years. So I don't know. That's there's a lot of sort of questions around him, and I don't know that they're necessarily going to be answered in this eight game bubble tournament. Yeah, that that that's entirely true. And and Harris is under contract beyond this year, and I expect him yep. to be a part of the twenty twenty slash twenty one Nuggets. So we can we can shelve that table that for now. Plenty more to talk about with Adam, but first a message from Bet Online. 
There is no shortage of action going on with our exclusive partners, Bet Online. Sports are slowly making their way back with UFC, boxing, NASCAR, and soccer leading the way. And Bet Online has all the best odds and lines for the upcoming games and matches. Use the Podcast One promo code when you sign up for a free account to get your sign up bonus and tell them that you came from us. And if you need more, Bet Online has simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC happening every day live for you to check out. And if you want something other than sports, they also have hundreds of live casino games, poker tournaments, and all the best props in the business. So visit BetOnline or use your mobile device and join now using the Podcast One promo code to receive your new welcome bonus and start playing today at BetOnline, your online wagering experts. I want to get into a little bit on the the broader Western Conference, and we'll keep it a little Nugget-centric at first, but we can go out beyond that if you want. And I wrote about this a little bit for The Athletic when we got the kind of the framework of how this is going to look, that the positional group or the kind of playoff group that interested me most in the West was the three through six. Yes, it is entirely possible that the Nuggets can catch the Clippers because they are only one and a half behind, and that's the same margin that they have again for the Jazz and then the Thunder and Rockets. They, they play each other too, yeah. or assuming the schedule is as rumored. Yes. Uh, so it is entirely possible, and, and that would certainly make things really interesting too, even though the Nuggets <laughs> wouldn't gaining home court against the Clippers right. doesn't mean anything. It's just because that changes some of the matchups and open, opens things up. Do but, they get to move up a floor or something if they get the two seed at the uh, the Grand Destino? Is they get they get works? they get extra they get extra flume ride privileges. I don't I don't know, I don't exactly <laughs> know, um, but. The part of what I'm so fascinated by with the 3-6, the so the Nuggets may or may not be a part of that mix, is that you have all these teams that are really close. And it also just so happens that the teams that are 3-6 through six play each other in the first round. And so it's this added element. So it's like, so let's say, I mean, Dallas could could catch up if they're hot. They're three games behind in the loss column against versus the Rockets and the Thunder. But they'd have to be really hot. But people yeah. need to remember how small of a sample eight games is. Like, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. as long as teams are close to 500, it's going to be hard to see some, some crazy movement. And so that actually creates, I would argue, an even stronger incentive to get the three because then you're facing the team of that group that played the worst in mm. all likelihood because they're close enough. You know, the Jazz Good Rockets, the Jazz, the Jazz Rockets and Thunder are all within a game of each other. And so there's this idea, like I, I've talked about this before, that whoever whoever ends up in the eight spot from both conferences is probably playing pretty well because they had to beat a bunch of teams to get there, especially in the West. But that's not really true of the sixth seed, and at least in comparative terms, and some of it yeah. could be schedule variants and all that. So what I kind of wanted to get in with you is I think the Nuggets, like I think it's probably going to end up that the three is, it's not a full backstop, but pretty close. Like I don't think they're going to fall too bad. But of those, let's say of those other three teams, and you can add the Mavs if you want, who do you think is the most favorable matchup from Denver's perspective? And who do you think is the least favorable? Well, I think the most favorable is the Utah Jazz for a couple different reasons. One, they're falling apart and, you know, obviously they're going to be out without Bogdanovich. They might be the least talented team of of the pairing of, of all four of those teams when you just take out one of their main scores then you also factor in you know just some of the um you know i, I you wonder what teams will be like coming back and regrouping after this much time out but i imagine for utah it at least makes rational sense to think that they would have a harder time regrouping because they were the group that's kind of you know donovan mitchell rudy gobert maybe maybe have a few tough uh, conversations ahead or tough moments ahead or whatever but utah i think is them and not just because of that denver shortly before everything broke off denver beat utah 
two times in one week, one at home, and then once on the road on the second night of a back-to-back, I think the fifth game in seven nights, when they only had seven players. And it was arguably Jokic's best performance of his career. I think, and this is my own theory from watching Jokic, I think he takes those center matchups extremely personally, especially with Rudy Gobert. And last year, you know, go, it, Derek Favors guarded Jokic, but Gobert was sort of always lingering around, and they really had a, this nice setup. Well, when Favors was gone, I think Jokic last year, whenever asked about that, you could tell he was visibly upset, trying to say, "Look, Gobert's not difficult for me. Like I know how to beat him. It's Favors and Gobert combo that's tough, or whatever." Well, this year, every time he had a chance, he went right at Gobert, including I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it was something like 30, 30 points, twenty rebounds, thirteen assists, some monster performance where Denver won that game on the road with no rest and Vlatko Chanchar and PJ Dozier were two of the seven players Tory Craig one of the other ones of the guys that were available for that one so I think Utah is a team that just has no answer for Jokic and who Denver takes just a little more personally than all those other matchups it is scary how much you got right there so you, you, you seven players Conchar and Dozier, Jokic 30, 21, and 10, plus 10 <laughs> in 40 minutes. So that means the, the Nuggets were outscored by seven, I believe, in the um, in the time, in the few minutes he didn't play. I'm guessing his minutes lined up pretty well with Gobert, just generally based on how those teams run sure. the rotations. Yeah, that's, that's monstrous. And in that game, remember, Bojan Bogdanovic played 34 minutes, and now he's out, and they can't really replace him with anybody. So, like, this is something I harp on a lot, which is the underrated part of an injury is that you also, like, so let's say you plug in somebody from the bench. Okay, that happens. You know, like, I think Joe Ingles can do, you know, he's not as good as Bogdanovich, but he can do some of what Bogdanovich does. But now you need to replace Joe Ingles on the second unit, too. And so you have the double downgrade. And it's not like Ingles can step up and play 48 minutes a game. So now you're relying on a, a, a lesser jazz man, and they don't really have a ton there. And as you brought up, Utah... They, you know, Quinn Snyder system and everything else, I think they kind of know what they are, but they were still figuring a lot of things out. They've dealt with a bunch of injuries. Conley had just one of the strangest regular seasons I can remember. And it is entirely possible that they just won't really get to it and that they won't really figure it out. I also think that Utah's defensive system could run into some real problems against the Nuggets because if you can pull Gobert away, they don't have a lot of great help protect rim protectors and all that so if he's away from the basket they rely this year especially without dark favors they rely so much on his individual brilliance to 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 mitigate and to to stop a lot of things and Jokic is one of the few players who can take some of that away and i mean in that game we're talking about the nuggets had a 102 deep offensive rating so it's not like they were unbelievable offensively but they did well enough with this insanely shorthanded group which you would expect will have have more help and so on the worst side, I'll say mine first. I think it's Houston. Yeah, because sure. Houston they're so combustible offensively, and and also I mean that brings to mind the you know the James Harden's a really hard guy to defend when they've gone to the, some of these approaches. Now there are specific things that Denver can do. People who long time real GM radio listeners can remember uh, Matt Moore and I talked about the the way that Jokic can attack their system and especially now that they're smaller that could potentially be a matchup but I just think Houston partially because their talent level is stronger to me than these other teams but also just because they they just have a lot of things that can work and so it's like one of the challenges that you don't want to face is a team that's clicking on all cylinders and I think Houston's ceiling is higher than everybody else's 
Yeah, well, they also – well, first off, I think Denver is like 1-13 in, in their last 14 matchups with Houston. So I that's, think that's right. Yeah, some, something like that. Something like that. And the one win, I think, came when Capella was gone, which is noteworthy because he's gone now. But, um, you know, that's that, that has been sort of the one team that has really given Denver a hard time. And a lot of those losses were blowout losses. Now, Denver also, if you remember, was the team that sort of invented this like pr- – early doubling of James Harden, just get mm-hmm. the ball out of their hands, which I think Houston has solved, by the way. I mean, I don't know how well teams remember, people remember the season that we just had because it was so long ago. But there was this period of time where the Houston Rockets were really struggling when when teams were starting to just like throw early doubles on James Harden and forcing anybody else to make plays, including Westbrook. I think they've solved that problem, most namely by giving putting the ball in Westbrook's hands primarily. I always say that I think Houston is now Westbrook's team, not Harden's. I know that's a stupid, you know, sort of phrase, but I, but it makes sense be, to me because he is the one now that has the, the sort of creates the unsolvable problem for, for most defenses. But I still think the same issues are the same. Look, Jokic needs to average thirty five points per game in that series, and he might. Especially this lighter version of him, you know, I'm, I'm very curious to see what that looks like against the PJ Tuckers of the world or whatever. And maybe the lighter body helps him to move out on the perimeter a little bit much. But he has to dominate the rebounds. He has to dominate inside as a one-on-one player. And then Denver just has to do a, a better job than what they've done in the last two, three seasons of containing on the perimeter. And this isn't just Jokic containing on the perimeter. Jamal Murray is the guy who, if you remember back last year against Portland and against San Antonio, Jamal Murray was the guy both of those teams targeted. Almost every single play in fourth quarters was, let's get Jamal Murray out on an island and try to attack him. Well, the Houston Rockets would do the exact same thing either with James Harden or with Russell Westbrook, whichever one they can get pushed out on him. And Denver doesn't really have a great answer for that. So in my opinion, they have to be just marginally better defensively at, at containing those guys when they attack with, with momentum. And then offensively, Jokic just has to punish them in the one area they're most vulnerable down on the block. I'm happy you brought up Skinny Jokic. I have been a little bit hesitant to talk to bring it up as much, although I am very interested in it, because it does feel to me like it's a lot of speculation. You know, like we don't know sure. exactly what it's going to mean, so we can we could be excited about it. I know you and I both are. But there it is going to be uh, another one of those, you know, like how how did the passage of time change things? So I am I'm definitely intrigued by how, how it affects his game more than anything else. Can I tell you my theory on this? And this is purely a theory of mine. This is like I, I, I feel comfortable putting my stamp on it. But at the same time, like if I'm wrong, I'd, I'd, uh, I'm not going to stick to my guns here. But you know, this transformation in Jokic with his body, first of all, every year he gets skinny. I don't think people realize this, but every year in the summer he gets skinny and then he puts on a ton of weight right before the season. And he's talked about how he likes his bigger body because he can lean on guys. And I think it, it's funny. Everybody's talking about that now that he lost weight. I never heard you know analysts talking about this before, but now they are because they're saying, oh, he's too skinny. But I think he's going to add some weight. But more than anything, I think Jokic feels very confident in the post against every single big in the NBA except for one. And that's Anthony Davis. And I think you can trace back Jokic's rapid weight loss this season to December 5th when the Nuggets got beat by the uh, Los Angeles Lakers. And if you recall, Jokic got out of the gate this year a little slow. And just it wasn't even that he looked slow. He just looked disinterested. But he had all these game winners and all these great fourth quarters. And it really – I know people didn't always watch the games, but it really felt like Jokic didn't try till the fourth quarter. He kind of moped up and down the court for a whole month. And then the fourth quarter, he was incredible. And it was almost like he was making a statement of some sort. So at least what it felt like. But he tried to do that against Anthony Davis on December 4th or 5th. I can't remember exactly which day. And he couldn't. Anthony Davis blocked his shot two or three times in the game. Anthony Davis was just taking him to school. 
And after that game, Jokic started going and working out after the games, like out of like anger. And it was so fast. A week, two weeks, you start seeing him. You physically can notice how much weight he was losing. And that continued all the way to the end of the season. And then right before the All-Star break, same thing happened. The Nuggets go to overtime against the Lakers in what was a fantastic game. And Jokic had a great game except for the fourth quarter in overtime where Anthony Davis once again sort of shut him down. And you, I could tell that Jokic was very frustrated by this. That's the one player that it seems like he just doesn't have an answer for. So my theory is that a lot of this, why Jokic is in the body that he's in now is because I think he feels like I'm not worried about Rudy Gobert. I'm not worried about Steven Adams or any of these other guys. I'm worried about Anthony Davis and to beat him, I have to have this body. And that's at least my theory. You know, he would never talk about this or speak about it. But that's my theory is he knows he has to be the skinny version of himself to go at at Davis. That's fascinating. And I seems totally sound to me, you know, and and we have have seen individual matchups shape the way individual players think about their body, think about what they need to work on. I mean, there are lots of examples of this throughout NBA history or specific matchups or, hey, I need to be stronger. I mean, the way that Shaq changed the way players thought about various things. And it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the Lakers are they were the best team in the in the West during the regular season at, b- before right. the hiatus. They are a likely playoff opponent, not a definite one, but a likely one. And uh, and and Jokic isn't even necessarily thinking about this year. He's thinking about well, crap. The league is going more in the Anthony Davis realm than anything else. And yep. Jokic is going to have those size advantages on almost everybody anyway. So I, that's part of why I, I think my my theory of it is that he might learn that he can use the other skills in his bag more often and doesn't have to lean on guys as much. That he doesn't have to be this like I know Ethan Sherwood Strauss has talked about the idea before about like or there are various things um, about like some certain pitchers are better when they're a little bit heavier because they it changes their balance and everything like that i don't Mm. think of Jokic that way i think of him as a player who who can use those things but can also use other things because he's one he's a phenomenally skilled player and and has other advantages and and knows how to use them well so yeah i'm i'm fascinated by that A, a question i wanted to ask you from a kind of tactical perspective is let's say and I think I think this is true. I think Houston is a better team, especially right now, than the Thunder and the Jazz. So let's say they move off the six line. Would it theoretically, if if let's say the Nuggets' goal is to make it as far in the playoffs as they can, is there a weird argument that if the Rockets aren't the six, so that means it's the Jazz or the Thunder, that they would rather be the three than the two because the Mavericks are more dangerous than the Thunder or the Jazz? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Um. I don't think the Mavericks are a threat to Denver too much, although they did, I think, beat them twice this year. But I think Denver I, – I, Dallas is a team I think Denver can solve. And in particular, that's another matchup where you just look at it and go, okay, who's going to be the best player on that court? Well, it might be Luka Doncic. But if you actually look at those games, Denver did an okay against uh, job against Doncic. I think Jokic could be the best player in that series. There's nobody they can match sure. up that would match up with him, and I, I just think he would probably dominate that series um, specifically. So, to me, no, I, th- I, I, I don't think Denver would be afraid. I really don't think Denver would be afraid of Utah, Oklahoma City, or Dallas. That's not to say they can't lose to them. It's just I don't think that they look at those ones and say, "Oh man, we have to." maybe change what we do. I think those are teams they think if we do what we do well, we're going to win. Houston's the one team where I think you have to kind of say like, 
all right, how do we beat them? And in what ways do we have to sort of bend from from our principles to to beat them? And that's that's why I just think they want to avoid them. I think a lot about from a person from a uh, team building perspective. You know, I write all these offseason previews and everything else like that. That one of the most important elements of of everything is defining success. And you and I can't do that for Tim Connolly and the ownership group and anybody else, but. <laughs> We can try to calibrate and use it for a form of prediction. And so we talked about how the decisions and everything like that are are so important for the Nuggets. If they were taking your advice, and if you can predict, if you want to predict what you think they're thinking as well, feel free. I I just can't do it. Um, How do you think the brass, let's use the term management to do ownership, front office, all that together. How do you think they're defining success seeding games and out? I, th- I think it's – this is such a cop-out answer, but I think it's true for them. It's forward momentum. And because they made it so deep into the playoffs this year, I think forward momentum is inc- increasingly difficult. That doesn't necessarily mean they need to make it to the Western Conference Finals because almost certainly they're going to have a tougher route to to the Game 7 of the second round than what they had last year. But first of all, you can't lose in the first round because Denver, if they are not better than Utah, Oklahoma City, or or Dallas, then I think you say, okay, what are we doing? We're no longer moving in the direction we wanted to. So forward momentum. But then tangibly, I think they, at least internally, feel like they are a contender. So I I think they want to find themselves in a second-round matchup with the Clippers or Lakers um, just to kind of see how they stack up. Yeah, I was thinking about how I would define it as they don't lose – and it's weird to frame it in the negative, but I think this is a good way to do it. They don't lose in the playoffs to a team that they are better than. You know, that yes. that was yeah, something I good. felt about the series with Portland last year. The bracket fell very favorably for them, and they didn't make full advantage. There were a bunch of reasons why that happened. The series was very close. Um, but you have that as one. And then the other part is a little bit of clarity on where this is going you know how does how does michael porter fit into this how yeah. does the power forwards and you know if they can if they can walk out i think in some ways for the long term arc of this the second is more important than the first but in terms of the product on the court we we, we all know how important defining success and meeting those thresholds can be and we're going to see that all around the league as we do every single year this time around so yeah I, i'm absolutely fascinated by that we haven't talked a, a ton about michael porter on here but you know I, i'm really I'm really high on two players in the Nuggets roster, Jokic, obviously, but Michael Porter Jr., in many ways, on that same level. I know that's crazy, especially you know how much I was sort of the first guy on the Jokic train, and, and I've, I've sort of led that charge. I just think he, even to this day he's an underrated player. At his best, he goes toe-to-toe with anybody in the league. But I think Michael Porter Jr. is a guy that, from a talent perspective, what I saw from him this year just blew my mind. He didn't play a lot of minutes. So when you said, you know, you said something in there about like learning what you have in Michael Porter, unfortunately, I think that's already out the door. He could play phenomenally in these eight games and then like, you know, be a starter or get a lot of minutes in the playoffs and really shock us. And that would be really the only scenario in which I would say, okay, now we know. But the fact of the matter is he didn't play a whole lot this year until he was forced to. Denver went through a period where half the roster was injured and he was forced to play. And oh, by the way, I think they went like 18 and seven over that stretch. He was incredible. He was the best player on the court in five or six of those games um, from either team. So I think so. Unfortunately, I just don't think we're going to be able to answer that question and so for me the season will will inherently be at least a little bit of a failure because i think that question being answered was more important than a lot of this other you know of the other stuff assuming denver doesn't win a title but so so i'm with you forward momentum i don't think they want to lose to a team that's worse than them and then just any more uh data points you can have on what you have including michael and especially michael porter and jamal murray um the more data points you can get on them the more you can sort of consider this season meaningful 
a couple of stats on on Michael Porter. As you said, you know, a little bit under 700 minutes so far. 59% true shooting. Insane. Those and those are those are those are not just dunks and putbacks. Those are three pointers and pull up jumpers and ISOs. 7.5 threes per 100 possessions. You kind of want to use that for a guy whose minutes can change around. Um, 42% on those. Don't expect the 42 to continue. And I do. Can I tell you something? I do. He's a great. he's, He's a great shooter. 40%. 40%. Sure, sure. I, I expect the, the you know, the hover around 40% because I actually think he's the best shooter on the Nuggets roster by a fair fair margin. It's probably between him and Jamal. And and the, one of the differences is that, at least for now, Michael Porter has done a lot of his work off-ball. Guys are generally yeah. better in, in those circumstances. And if you were to ask me, like, so because I thought Porter a couple of years ago was by far the best player at the Nike Hoop Summit. That was before all the back issues and everything else that led to him falling in the draft. And part of what intrigued me so much was that he's this big guy. I think, yeah, now he's probably more in the 6'10", 6'11 range. Back then, I think he was more like 6'9". But he's comfortable with the ball in his hands. Like The guy that I compared him to offensively was, at that stage, we were seeing the early kind of inclinations of where Blake Griffin would go more Mm. last year than this year. And he had, uh, like, every once in a while he'd make intriguing passes. He's very comfortable with ball handling. And the Nuggets don't need as much of that, but... Something that I hold on to, especially when it's at an unusual size, is guys who have those sorts of skills, they will benefit their teams in different in, in unusual ways. Like, guy who can handle the ball, that will bear fruit somewhere. And especially in the Nuggets system, like, you, you'll, it'll find ways. And I mean, I think that's also part of why he's been a good cutter, why he, like, if it is, because he kind of gets how that, how that stuff works. And so I, I think that he will fit in very well if they can figure out the defensive part then then we're we're really getting somewhere and i'm wondering you know like so like you because you're kind of piecing all this stuff together i mean with denver it's what is their future starting five and i've been getting more and more enamored with the idea that in oh god i don't even like game made out this far but let's say may of 2021 that he's in your starting and closing five i don't exactly know who he's defending and what position he's quote-unquote playing oh, but- oh i think you're being extremely uh, conservative here i i I, th- I think he starts next season and there's almost no assuming yeah, no i think i think he probably starts next season but what i'm saying is i care a lot more about may than i do about december or whatever oh okay yeah okay. because because things can you know there are lots of complicated especially when two of the players around him are unrestricted free agents right now or will be in a couple months then you know sometimes yeah. you can make them happy at the very beginning but yeah Porter- you'll laugh at this comp but do you know where the, the two players i mean everybody compares them to kevin durant and they, their bodies are similar i think kd obviously that's a high bar i mean we're talking yes. about high end there aren't high many end. bars higher than that yeah there's not many bars higher than that but and i think kd probably maybe a little bit more of a one-on-one score like he just had maybe yes. michael porter will grow into that portion of it but the other half of his game that really surprised me that i had no idea of i think he has some clay thompson in his game Jokic during the training camp this this year so only a few days into ever playing with michael porter said he was the best cutter on the team Mm -hmm. and i think i agree with this he moves so well off ball his shot release is so high and so fast and it's just so pure i mean watching him shoot in games or in or, or in practice or whatever it's not as pretty as Clay Thompson. I think it's the prettiest jumper ever. But it, it's just one of those ones where you're not shocked when it goes in because it looks so perfect. Every, every piece of it is so mechanical and so fluid. And so watching him move off ball, and in particular with Jokic, I just am not surprised that he scores as much as he does. And in his per minute, you know, per 36 minutes or however you want to slice up, when he's on the court, the one thing he does every single game, whether it's a good game or a bad game, is score. And it's just because he moves so well off ball. I agree. And... 
we we've danced around this a little bit, but I will say it outright. If the Nuggets can make the rise to championship contender champion, it's because Michael Porter is the one who yeah. he's not going to necessarily because Strong he's agree. their best player, but. Jokic, it's it's hard for me to imagine Jokic getting that much better than like first team All NBA. Like they're right. your yeah. first team, they can't really go to like a zeroth team. But if Michael Porter can become the second best player in the Nuggets and become a legitimate second best player on a team of that ilk, then the Nuggets are a very diff- very different team. And that you know, it's it's a, it would be unfortunate if that's the case that it happens to be in this Western Conference because there are some damn good teams right now, and there will continue to be because some of the major market teams are well run and everything else, and there's a lot of star talent. But you know, I had been lamenting, you know that. The Nuggets, they kind of, kind of felt, and I don't know if you felt this way to me because you, because you kind of got to see it in a different way. And you got to see the arc of it more than I did. It was kind of like, okay, they are, they are this very specific thing. But with Porter, I think that they can reach another level, and that would be a dream. Yeah, uh, it, that's you. You hit the nail on the head here. I can't picture this Nuggets team without him being. You know, I think they'll be good. I, I, they're going to be a playoff team for years and years to come, and they're probably going to be a home court advantage team, and at least in the first round, they'll be a top four out West team without Michael Porter. But I think, be, given that they've put so much money towards Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, I think that that duo alone is just a good, a very good, not great team. And to be great in the NBA takes so much. But if Michael Porter, and and just so you know, I'm not too much of a homer. I'm obviously I've covered this team. I you know I care about this team, whatever. I, I, but you know Jamal Murray, I'm I'm probably lower on than most people. I, Jokic, I think is is incredible, and Michael Porter has the potential to become incredible. We just don't know yet. But I've seen enough to say, okay, that guy's a star if he can be healthy and he can grow. But Jamal Murray's the one where every third game he looks like an all star. The, the other two games he looks like a you know just another guy, just like a, a good starter. So. Um, to me, I'm 100% on board with that. The Murray-Jokic duo is good, not great. They need Michael Porter to be that that guy. We've already covered a lot of ground, but I wanted to open the floor to you before we end. If there's anything Nuggets-related or whatever-related that you want to discuss, or we could just be done. I, I it, The only thing I would say is that Denver is, is – they are at a crossroads. And I know a lot of teams feel like they're at a crossroads, but Denver I really did expect this summer – I expected last summer to go differently. I thought Denver would pull the trigger on a Malik Beasley deal before the season started because I just – saw him not playing but when they did finally do that i thought okay well denver's gonna do you know this offseason then will be will be a big shakeup. you mentioned you don't think gary harris will get traded i actually thought he would be i no longer i no longer know what to think because this offseason's guy i think will be more bizarre and unpredictable than any that i've seen in the last five or six years but gary harris will barton tory craig um, you know, Mason Plumley is a free agent, unrestricted free agent. Paul Millsap's an unrestricted free agent. I just think Denver had a lot of sort of this was the year they could kind of pivot and maybe go in a different direction around their main pieces. But I, I no longer now know what to think, and that's why I think Denver's sort of rise is even more uncertain than what it was before. Agreed. Yeah, this is a very hard offseason to predict. And another, you know, just just to kind of throw this idea out there is that these front offices have had a very different stretch of time to think about things and to maybe potentially for mm. general managers to discuss different different concepts. And so I have no idea what that's going to lead to. And like there are parallels to when they moved the trade deadline ahead of the All-Star game, which was a time the general managers used to talk all the time. So it's kind of like it changed it changed the trade deadline for a couple of years until teams kind of figured out how to handle it. And I, I'm 100% sure that 
COVID-19 changed the offseason beyond the normal, like, oh, the salary cap is lower and all that type of stuff. From a, from how these teams prepared and what they've discussed and what has already been, maybe not agreed to, but the general contours. But what's exciting is I have no idea what it is, and I'm probably not going to know until it happens. Yeah, yeah that's I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel the same way. Um, and, so I mean, I'm, I'm some would probably be frustrated by that. I'm excited by it. You know, like I, I, I like I like not knowing spoilers, not knowing where things are going. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much, man. It was good to good to talk nuggets with you. Thanks again to Adamatis for taking the time to come on. You can read and see his work at DNVR Sports. The URL there is the T H E D N V R dot com. Really excited to see how that turns out. Um, I remember Adam telling me about it back kind of around when it started and I was I was pretty juiced up and some of the timing was a little bit challenging with uh with COVID but I'm I'm super excited about it. You can also of course follow him on Twitter at Adam underscore Maris, A D A M underscore M A R E S and love talking with him and think I thought the Nuggets are one of the most compelling teams for a month plus away from now and I always want to talk to Adam so I was really looking forward to that. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. Totally understand if it's not. If you want to be awesome, you can leave one both places. Also, word of mouth, very important with this show. And telling people you like this episode, telling people like the series in general, just trying to get more people to listen. And subscribing, downloading every episode. That's extremely important for Real Jam Radio in particular because it will never have a specific day of the week. It can't really with my schedule and my guest schedule. So subscribing, downloading takes all the guesswork out of that and you don't have to see a tweet from me or whatever else. So you can check that out. But the most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is Bet Online. Go to Bet Online website, mobile device, use the podcast one promo code which tells them you came from us and gives you an awesome sign up bonus. So there's something benefiting each side here. And you can also check out my other work. Uh, lots going on at The Athletic right now. Have the my solo off-season preview series, the ones I'm writing by myself. Those are coming out, uh, it's probably, let's say, roughly about two a week. Um, I'm going to do the Delete 8 entirely before the start of the seeding games, and then my hope is to have, actually have a version of all of them ready before, so that when teams are eliminated, we have those ready to roll. But also doing a collaborative series of... Uh, I would call them team discussions, not off-season previews, with Seth Partnow, Sam Vecini, and Dave Dufour, which are really fun. The Warriors and the Bulls conversations are out for that, and we're going to be hammering those out as well. So a really good conversation. I think the Warriors one was over 5,000 words, so you got a lot of material there. Then Dunked On, Nate and I are going, uh, still going twice a week. This week we did uh, West Mailbag. Actually, I think it was the East Mail. We did East and West Mailbags over the last week, and then also he had on Mark Spears to talk about uh, diversity and coaching and a lot of other interesting topics. So you can check that out. If you have any input, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. And I will respond if I can, but the promise is to read it, and hopefully so if it's input, that's what you're really looking for. And if I read it, then it can affect the show. Um, and I do respond when I can, but I just can't all the time. So that is more than enough for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.